Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. Today, we're time traveling back to 1971, California, where we'll learn how the author Sharon Duquette survived sex, drugs, and rock and roll and lived to tell the story in her new book, No Rules. It's a memoir worth reading. Congratulations, Sharon Duquette, and welcome. Hello, Diane. Nice to be here today. Great. It's great to have you with us. You've taken us back in the magic bus, and it's quite an arc that you have drawn from being hippie nomad to computer programmer. I'm going to give listeners a bit of biographical information, um, but I will mention I couldn't help but notice that um, everything, the waitressing and the computer programming are treated democratically um, as, as though each experience contributes richly to your life. And this book really took me back. Today we'll be transported by it. Sharon Duquette has been a computer programmer, deputy director in state government, cocktail waitress, and project manager, project management professional certified, no less. And she has designed and embroidered handmade clothing. She travels extensively using loyalty points and avoiding tourist traps. When she is home, she and her husband live in central Connecticut in a house he built that overlooks the Connecticut River, the house where they raised their family. When not writing or blogging, she is reading, skiing, biking, golfing, spending time with family and friends, creating clutter, and committing to more activities than she probably should. Everyone can relate to this, Sharon. She loves reading memoir from a variety of backgrounds to learn how others feel, experience life, and deal with their struggles. No Rules is her debut memoir. Do we think there's going to be a sequel, Sharon? Uh, Not in the near future. I'm actually working on a novel right now. And that novel is focused on climate change. Very good. Very good. Okay. Well, that's a much, much needed story. Um, I wanted to go back to No Rules, um, this very strong and powerful memoir. Um, It's uh, just your bio is, that's not all. The container of this book is the time when you took off with your older sister, Anne, when you were 16 years old. You headed out to California together to see what you could see. The language of the book is spare, and we feel present in every scene. About No Rules, to give listeners a bit of background, it's 1971 in Connecticut, where Sharon and her sister lived. The 16-year-old Sharon's parents think that because she's a girl, she should become a clerical office worker after high school and live at home until she marries and has a family. But Sharon wants to join the hippies and be part of the changing society. So she leaves home and heads to California. Upon arriving there, Sharon is thrown into an adult world for which she is unprepared 
and she embarks on a precarious journey through the counterculture of the 1970s. On her various adventures across the country and while living on a commune with friends and lovers filtering in and out of her life, she realizes she must quickly learn in order to survive. Sharon, talk about a great credential for a job application, proving yourself and the proving grounds of survival out there must have been huge to your sense of self-efficacy. You survived on little money or nothing seemingly. For how many months were you, were you gone? Uh, well, there was the period of time when I was with my older sister. And initially, she had some savings. And uh, we lived on that at first, and then she, she was able to collect unemployment. And so we lived on her unemployment um, and food stamps, which I don't know if I mentioned that in the book. Mm-hmm. And then, you did. Um, okay. And then later on, I did have a job. Uh, my first job was in Boston, um, working at the Stop and Shop uh, on a cash register. So I made a little bit of money there. And... Um, and then after that, I just sort of lived off of that and, you know, whatever else came my way. But um, in between, I, I had moved home uh, and uh, had some other jobs, you know, sort of little part-time jobs here and there. Mm-hmm. But, and, um, then, and then you made your way to California, a place you'd always wanted to, to see. Right, yes. Initially, I had gone to California with Pauline, and that was kind of a fantasy in our minds, having grown up in Connecticut and everything, um, everything you see on television, uh, especially back in the 60s when I was a child, you know, California was definitely this mecca of, um, you know, Gidget and surfing Mm -hmm. and the Beach Boys and all that and Hollywood. um, it, It just seemed like this amazing place. Right. It, is, it was a mecca, absolutely. Um, you know, surfers and the Beach Boys and, you know, the romanticism of it was incredible. Um, and then you, you did survive together. Um, you know, f- for how many months were you there in, in California then, you and Anne together? Um, at that point in time, we arrived in the middle of January and I left, I think, in the middle of May. Uh, mm-hmm. She stayed a few months longer, um, and then, so it was really a short period of time, but there was a lot of adventures that went into that short period of time, um, because I think when you're living uh, by yourself, and I think people can people can kind of relate to this, especially now, because we've all been in this quarantine period, and to most of us, it seems like it's forever, right? Like, how long mm-hmm. has it been since this didn't happen? So if you think of that in terms of being young, being 16 years old and in a new place, um, that period of my life had so much that went on in this short period of time that it seemed like there was no world before that uh, at the time that I was living it. And every day something new happened. Um, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a lot. There was a lot going on, and the other um, part where I resonated um, with the idea of the pandemic and um, the way we're living now in an alternative universe is when you were talking about hitchhiking. This is something really another thing that's inconceivable now is the amount of hitchhiking that you all did. But you talk about being a wanderer or a nomad with your sister, and then when you talk off. Uh, to Canada and um, other places you cross the country. Um, you know, you talk about the destination not being, you know, obviously the journey is is the point, but also you were sort of saying fellow travelers understood this, that the present moment was everything. Um, the destination, yep, you might get there, and but it was the how and the why and the way um, that was kind of important. And I think that that focusing and slowing down time was also meaningful to me um, when you were talking about those passages. But I do have to think that, um, you know, it, it may not have been an eternity, but for a young girl, 16 years old, to be out on her own with her sister, it, it, it must have developed a sense, an inert sense of self-worth. It may not have come out exactly at that time, but you knew you could survive after that. I did. I did indeed. And, um, and I also learned, part of what I learned was just how much I didn't know um, in, in small ways. Um, for example, um, I hadn't really done a lot of cooking at home. And, uh, you know, my mother always did most of the cooking and I might have helped out with some things here and there, but I, I wasn't much about cooking and, so I had to learn all of those kinds of things from, from the beginning. And, um, you know, there's one scene where I'm in the kitchen with, an, with a woman who's older than me, who's very adept at this, and, and I'm feeling absolutely incompetent. Um, mm. So there was things like that that I realized that I needed to know a lot more about, um, you know, even more so than just, you know, the big things like getting a job and, and all that kind of stuff, just the little everyday survival things that people mm-hmm. do uh, as an adult. Right. And so, you know, providing for yourself in so many ways, you know, it's, it's so familiar to me, um, this part of your story, because, you know, with the roles of the mom, who, your mom was at home, um, you know, she did the cooking and, and it's so, it, it brings back so much for me um, in this book, you know, that that there really was no room, right? She was the person in in that role, but you were not really to start acquiring skills about, you know, that kind of, um, you know, nourishing yourself. And um, your parents, your childhood um, with your parents, and you talk about this, I think, very even-handedly in the book. There's a very well-balanced perspective about your parents, their hardship um, from their Irish history, which was very difficult and impoverished and struggling, as were many immigrants. Um, and But they imposed a very rigorous, stern set of rules on you and your sister, um, partly because of their fears of doom, 
Um, and, and this is something, you know, common to many of us who had that first generation of parents. And, um, you know, I wonder now that we know that you've already raised your family, I just wondered, um, how, do you, how do we not transmit the anxiety of the previous generation to the next? You know, how, how did that work for you in terms of your consciousness? Well, I think that uh, for me, I mean, I probably did transmit some of that anxiety uh, in a different way. Um, There were times when I actually thought to myself that um, my children were disadvantaged because they didn't didn't grow up poor. (laughs) Therefore, Mm -hmm. uh, they they did learn um, as much as I did about how to get by with nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, But they have you know, they've had moments in their life when they've had to do that as adults. So, you know, some of that has changed. But uh, that is one thing that I didn't realize at the time was a strength that my parents had taught me is is how to live on virtually nothing and and still be fine. Um, So that was, um, you know, that was actually a positive thing that came out of that, that I would have never recognized as being a positive thing at the time. Yes. and the other thing that I didn't realize until later in life was, you know, they constantly talked about World War II. They talked about it at the dinner table. It always came up about things. And that was really the one common thing that they shared between the two of them, because my father was from America. My mother was from England. Uh, mm-hmm. They met during the war. And I look back now and I say to myself, geez, when I was born, it had only been six years since World War II. And, you know, that's not very long. And no wonder that was so deeply ingrained in their conscience. Uh, and, in fact, you know, the Korean War was going on and, and, other, and the Cold War. So you had all these, um, all these activities and, and political um, things happening to them um, that were very much a part of how they viewed the world, you know, the atomic mm-hmm. bomb. Uh, and I'm sure you remember uh, going to school where people were, you know, you had to duck and cover under your desk and that kind of thing because yes. you know, somebody might drop the bomb. Um, and that would have so saved we us if we were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's just, you know, you, you talk about your parents' fears um, and especially your mother's. Um, and you you talk about you know what what and this is a quote so that people can get a feel for the language of the book. What my mother knew was fear, a creeping, pervasive kind of fear that reaches out the dark edges of your soul in ways I didn't understand. When the airport near us began having night flights, planes occasionally flew over our house on a landing approach low enough so we could hear the engines roaring overhead. I was startled from my sleep one night when I heard her screaming from my bed. I ran into my parents' room and found Mummy sitting up with wide, terrified eyes, my mother, hold, her, my father holding her closely. She thought it was the Germans, he explained. She thought it was a bombing raid, and she hadn't heard the air raid signal. You say, I climbed up next to them and hugged her too. When you, when she came out of her days, she seemed embarrassed. Those darn planes, they scared me. I'm sorry I woke you. 
She cuddled me in her arms, reassuring me that everything was all right before rising to take me back to my room and tuck me into the bed. There, I also feel the tenderness. Um, I know your mom um, was um, from the UK, from England. Um, but there are further ancestors, I think, that were um, from Ireland. Do I have that correct? Uh, yes, yes. My mother, okay. my mother's father was from Ireland. Yes, but this oh, this whole idea that you could be living in the suburbs of Connecticut and think it was the Germans um, with having an air raid, of course, trauma lives with us that way, right? It's cellular, and it will right. come back as a kind of a visitation. I just wondered, right. um, we, yeah. And, and, and that, was, that mm-hmm. was another thing that I came to realize, probably even just somewhat recently, um, with, you know, all the knowledge now about PTSD. My mother had PTSD, and sure. I never knew, knew that as a child, and some of the odd things that she did and got upset about, like she hated the 4th of July, she hated the sound of fireworks. I mean, mm-hmm. she just freaked out over fireworks, and now that all makes sense to me that I understand so much more about PTSD than, of course, nobody talked about it back then. Right. She was experiencing a kind of trigger and, um, you know, who knew? So it is really worthwhile that we've done the exploring that we have. I just wondered if um, her fears um, in the few minutes that we have, we have a couple minutes until we take a commercial break. We're here with Sharon Ducat, author of No Rules, a fascinating memoir. Um, And uh, I wondered, Sharon, did these fears that you were osmosing somehow help you shape yourself into being determined to become fearless? Uh, sir, yeah, definitely. Um, because I, I would look around me, you know, she would tell me the things that, um, you know, that I shouldn't do because this might happen or that might happen. You know, there's a lot of talk in the book about um, swimming and, you know, yet I could look around at other people who were swimming and they didn't drown and they didn't get sick from going in somebody's pool and none of these bad things happened. And instead of um, getting to enjoy life uh, as a child, doing many of the things that other children were doing, um, I had to live with restrictions based on her fears. And as a result of that, um, I just felt strongly that I didn't want to have to do that anymore. I was going to throw off all of that and just go out and find life. Find life and let life find you. Um, It was kind of emancipation. We are going to come back from a commercial break and we're going to hear more about the trip. And believe me, this is more than just a physical trip. It's the acid trips that you took. Um, Very fascinating in the book to hear about those. And to hear also how you rejected the point of view of your parents, which was you could have a career or a family, but not both. You have to choose. Um, and un- just like when you were um, told you couldn't go into the swimming pool of your dear friend at the time, I think you made your, your own decision about those kinds of restrictions. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In with Sharon Duquette.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Sharon Ducat, who's written a very cool memoir called No Rules. She took off from home at age 16 with her older sister, Anne. They headed for California eventually, where they established a hippie lifestyle, um, friends and boyfriends drifting in and out, drugs drifting in and out. Um, And this was upon um, a certain critical pivot, Sharon, that you made when you learned, for example, from your parents in no uncertain terms, um, I'll just quote this from No Rules, if you want, they said to you, if you want to have a career, you can't get married and, you, and have a family too. You can't do both. You have to choose. Your mother nodded her head for emphasis. And if you aren't going to get married, then you shouldn't thinking you shouldn't be thinking about boys. She glared at you now. There's no point in dating if you're gonna be a career girl. It's a lonely life if that's what you want. I mean, how scary is that? And I think it was a little too late, right? The the, the horse was out of the barn, right? You 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 were in boys were very interested in you. You were interested in boys. Um, and your father, of course, who'd been sitting in the same room, chimed in and said, yeah, we won't be able to support you. You'll need to have a job. Even if we could pay for college, what would you live on? Those are daunting words. Um, no wonder you got up and went out the door at a certain point. Yes, I, I couldn't see what I had to gain by just staying where I was and continuing on. Uh, doing the same thing that I was doing because this was apparently where my life was leading uh, if I was to follow their rules, as it were, and um, continue on uh, on this prescribed uh, trail of my life. So um, with with that bleak future in mind, uh, there wasn't much to keep continuing for. Right. Uh, And that became the impetus for looking for something else. Yep, there wasn't anything to look forward to, um, given those very arbitrary kind of uh, binary choices, um, which we now know, you know, can be woven together in so many ways. I wondered, um, from that kind of background thinking, 
you know, how, how did it shape your, your feminism? I mean, um, there are several, there's a couple of passages in your blog where you talk about feminism. And um, do you describe yourself as a feminist? I do. I, I definitely describe myself as a feminist. And I, one of the things that I think in particular that I learned as I did a lot of reading um, around that time period later on uh, was that I, I realized that so much of my mother's unhappiness came from um, the restrictions that were on her life and that, you know, I felt had, had she gone out and had a job, she might have been much happier because she would talk a lot about when she was in the Army um, because my mother was in the, in the Army in England during World War II. And she kind of described it at times as the best years of her life. And mm-hmm. I came to believe that the reason she felt that way is that she was doing something important and fulfilling um, something that, you know, really gave her a sense of accomplishment. Uh, she had all of those things. And uh, that was why uh, after, you know, going from that to the life in the suburbs where she had no car, where she was at home all the time, where she saw no people, um, was very depressing for her. And sure. I felt that, yeah, that, you know, that was something that women were expected to do at that time in the 50s and in the 60s. Without even a thought of what they were giving up. I mean, working is the best kept secret, I think. Um, It's the thing that really balances you out and can help define you um, as a person. She also played piano and, you know, there were not necessarily outlets for this where she was going to experience any reward it was a rather narrow focus and here's your your parents um talking about you you had a kind of a boyfriend a kind of a sort of um tentative boyfriend um when you were at home with eddie um and um your parents had managed to limit your time with him but all that had done was make you like him more. And you write, I suppose they were trying to save my virginity, but there's always time for sex, no matter how little time there is. They should have let me spend every minute of every day with him so I got to know him better. That would have ended it. (laughs) Here, I I just hear this wonderful, wry voice of yours, a very knowing voice, Um, even to absorb the question of what what was there to look forward to and to act upon it. You put layers and layers of clothes on yourself one day. You grabbed a, a bag. You put your clothes and belongings in it. You looked around your room and bade goodbye, and you walked out to the door saying goodbye to your mom as if you were going off to school and took off. Um, you met up with yeah. Anne and, um, yeah, and, the, and the boyfriend, and, and, you, and you three took off. Um, here's to you for that. I just, somehow, the, the struggle, it really, it, it's, it's something you can identify with. Um, but I think many people, um, you know, you dedicate the book to Anne, your sister, because you say she gave you her freedom. Um, and, you know, I, I put and this she in. she did. She did. And it's, it's lovely. She did, yeah. Um, full circle. Um, you know, freedom is that really funny word, right? Like, you know, of course, there's Janis Joplin. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. But, you know, there's more. It's more complex. And, um, you know, Jonathan Franzen delved into it in his book, Freedom. Um, 
where he, you know, comically and tragically captures the burdens of freedoms, the thrills of teenage lust, um, the shaken compromises as we go on. Um, but basically, in No Rules, it's you, you find freedom. And then, because there's so many concerns of safety and survival, um, it almost becomes the freedom of not being free anymore at a certain point. Um, your daily life was kind of chaotic, right? You were tripping a lot. Um, and I thought, wow, this is really interesting. You didn't hesitate to drop acid. Um, and then you became a computer programmer. So part of me was back on like Stephen Jobs saying the most important thing he did in college was to drop acid. And then he went into, you know, information technologies. He said it freed his mind. It led him to be able to think out the box, outside the box and beyond the horizon. I wonder if you feel as though that mind expansion was healthy in that way for you. Uh, Actually, in a lot of ways, yes. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily attribute it to dropping acid. I mean, that was just one part of all of it. But I do think that experiencing a whole different um, way of learning about life definitely made me think outside the box, as it were. Um, That's very much uh, something that was useful to me uh, in my career uh, as a computer programmer and later as a manager of, you know, web technology projects and so forth, Um, because I've always found that uh, it's, it's much easier for me to come up with innovative ideas or alternative ideas to kind of how a lot of people are thinking because I think that's because they've been taught a certain way, whereas for me, a lot of it was self-taught. And, um, and, and that's why uh, people who do well in that field um, have this, you know, different perspective. Uh, because you right. really, to be to be innovative and to be creative, you can't just follow the rules, as it were, that everyone else has done, or you're just going to keep recreating the same thing. Right. You could wave the cover of your book, no rules, and then you know it's a spark. It really, um, it really dislodges a lot of you know sameness. And I think being autodidactic, learning for yourself, you integrate it a lot more fully. Um, and I think that that's, it sounds, it, to me, it sounds very true. Um, there was another dimension um, at the end of your trip to Canada. You also had a, a kind of um, spiritual awakening. And I also want to just mention here in the, um, the traveling part of it, you know, th- there's also this, this lasting value that you have on traveling, right? Experiencing different cultures, um, I wonder, Absolutely. you know, this kind of jars you out of your, that, that kind of rut of thinking that we can get into. Um, and, and um, you know, you've, you've managed to keep that as part of your life, which I, I found that interesting because um, it, it, it obviously has a value. Uh, um, you're, um, let's, let's take you now to your in Canada. Um, there's another man with you. Uh, this 
epochs that you had were also bracketed by um, different boyfriends, which was also very interesting. Um, but you're in Canada and you connect very deeply with nature. Um, and uh, you have this kind of spiritual awakening. You were elapsed, uh, you were raised as a Catholic. You were, you, you had a fair amount of skepticism about the, the church. Um, and you talk about, you know, this kind of connection that you felt. Um, and I, I can't help but go back to what, you know, Jung said, Latin for spiritus. Um, you use the same word for the highest religious experience um, that you do for spirits. Uh, and also that it takes um, either real religious insight or the protective wall of human community to overtake that. So you you banded together with some hippies. You were banding together when you stayed um, at various, various youth hostels. Um, and then you started to feel a connection with nature. And I wondered if you felt as though all along you were looking for some kind of spiritual connection. That definitely became um, more of a need during my, um, during this 1972. Um, I was 17 at that point when I did this cross country, cross Canada journey. Um, and also earlier, uh, there were some other travels that got me thinking about religion, about spirituality, about God, um, and all of that, of course, is in the book. Uh, but yet, there was something that didn't quite sit right with me. And while I had always liked the outdoors, uh, I had not had much experience with actually getting way out into the wilderness. So um, this was something that uh, Ernie, who I was traveling with, had done before um, and kind of dragged me along into the woods, camping and trying all these new things that I hadn't done. So, um, and that was such a beautiful way to experience the, uh, you know, the point where this happens was in British Columbia. We were somewhere in Banff National Park along a river Um, And then, you know, I was just wandering through the forest and looking up and looking around me, and it was just the most amazing thing. And uh, even now, I think anyone walking into that kind of environment, you can't help but be awed by your surroundings. And for me, being the first time I had ever been in that kind of environment, and also after spending, you know, a number of days traveling through Canada where there was lots of wilderness, um, even when you're out in the prairie provinces where you don't have forests, you still have, you know, miles and miles of nothingness. Um, of course, this was back in the 70s. I don't know if that's changed. Uh, I haven't been across Canada since, but I, I'm guessing there's still quite a lot of that. Um, Right, but you, you weren't you weren't traveling in a luxurious RV either. You were exposed. No. You were really one with nature. You were hitchhiking, right? right? How were you getting around? Yeah, we were How hitchhiking, was- and uh, we had a pup tent, a couple of sleeping bags, and that was it. So, um, and you know, we had. Uh, I, I truly could write a book just on that trip because we had so many interesting experiences with our rides and so forth. 
Um, and in my original um, first draft, I did write about many of them, but that was just way too long. So a lot of that had to go, and I just kept some of the important highlights. Um, but the um, but in particular, being there in uh, in British Columbia in the wilderness was just such an amazing experience for me. And um, that's where I really felt that um, Mother Nature um, and the spirituality of, of you know, the mother um, being, uh, being of the earth and all that kind of thing, um, that really hit me a lot. And that's when I realized that I felt that need to connect to nature more. And that has stayed with me in many ways. I mean, I, you know, I live in a fairly ordinary house now and so forth, and I'm not living in the forest, but um, I have a very strong feeling, like I mentioned before, about, uh, you know, writing about climate change. I mean, to me, um, you know, protecting the planet and nature and and all of that is... um, is such an important thing and that has stayed with me all of my life. It really is important, Sharon. And we're here talking with Sharon Duquette, the author of the memoir, No Rules. It's out very soon, June 2nd. And um, really it's such an adventure just to read it. I think that this value of nature and feeling as though we need to preserve it and coming from that experience is a very, it's a very rich one. And, you know, there's a oneness that you feel with nature and, you know, Woody Allen famously said, I feel two with nature. I mean, he just didn't get it. Um, comes to light that he didn't get a lot of things. But in any case, you did feel a oneness and you, I think, felt a oneness also when you were participating in, um, well, n- not just smoking pot, but, you know, tripping with someone was like an act of intimacy, right? You would drop acid and you would go on a trip yeah. together. Um, and, and that's so interesting to me uh, because there again, not just the hitchhiking, which is unfathomable in our world now, but the dropping acid because it was casually, like somebody might hand you a, you know, a blotter of acid. Um, a couple of years ago, um, actually at my, at my daughter's uh, wedding in Brooklyn, um, it, or our, my stepdaughter's wedding, um, there was a guest who was out partying uh, afterwards and hit a bar in Brooklyn and um, the bartender passed him a blotter of acid and he put it on his tongue. And, you know, one of our, one of our family just opened the guy's mouth and pulled it out and said, you know, are you crazy? I mean, you don't know anymore (laughs) what you're getting. Right. Um, It still happens, but But you you didn't know that either, but (laughs) well, but, but I'd be much more afraid today. And, and, you know, I don't know if this person had ever tried acid before, but they if he hadn't, he certainly had no idea what he was about to get into. Right. Well, you had on your, you, you know, you had on your strong, strong girl pants when you did what you did. And um, I think it's interesting what you just alluded to, uh, too, about mother, mother earth and the mother, um, the mothership of it and, um, and our need to protect it. Um, things did go um, you know, there were there there was this robust identity that was starting to be emergent in you, um, but you first had to kind of bottom out. And I think um, you know we have a moment left until we need to 
um, break again for a commercial. But, you know, you, you had some experiences that were pretty, close. Um, there was a near rape. Um, and I wondered after a while if that was testing you just a bit too much and whether or not you feel as though you live under a lucky star. Oh, I definitely feel like a lot of things that I survived had a lot to do with luck. Um, you know, it could have gone so much worse um, in a lot of ways. So, mm-hmm. um You know, all the times I hitchhiked, I really never ran into anything severe, serious. Uh, There were times I got out of cars because I got a bad feeling about um, the driver or something, or didn't get into cars. There there were times I didn't get into cars. Uh, Uh Not a lot, though. Uh, In general, um, and in general, most people um, were very kind and, you know, some people were a little crazy and... (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but you know yeah. a lot of times especially especially in the Canada trip we often found that people just wanted company they were driving you know 800 right. miles someplace and, and they, they were wanted lonely. to be able to talk to somebody yeah yes. exactly well the fun part is so. for the readers of No Rules is that we get to go along on these adventures it's great that you had intuition guiding you it is a form of protection and it is an inner voice I think that, um, you know, when we, we're going to take a commercial break now, but when we come back, um, speaking with Sharon Ducatte, author of No Rules, we're going to understand what kind of rules there actually were, what kind of codes of behavior there actually were in the hippie environment, and where this all led. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. And we're here with Sharon Ducat, whose memoir, No Rules, is a sensational insider look at hippie culture during the early 1970s when Sharon was an adventurer with her sister. Um, hitchhiking, communing, um, in, enjoying a freewheeling lifestyle, um, and also being very uh, responsible for their own survival. Um, there was a 
code of behavior to this um, lifestyle. Um, you know, there was not the endorsement of the establishment. There was a lot of mistrust of the material world and worldly wealth. Um, you know, there was a, a kind of a nomadic existence. And um, Sharon, you know, we, we were kind of talking about the trust that people had at that time in in terms of hitchhiking, in terms of dropping acid. I, I thought maybe, you know, this, this episode could be called instead of dropping in, dropping acid. Acid because it was really, um, and it's it's really well handled in the book too. People can come along vicariously um, for this ride, which was at times scary, which was other times invigorating. Um, and I, I wondered um, this this whole non-material world. It's so hard to articulate, and you did a great job of it in No Rules. I I had I, I was transported back because I I hadn't really put words to this for such a long time. But here's your quote about, um, in no rules, the kind of code of ethics that there was, quote, a belief that by relinquishing material belongings, you became a better person. This apparently connected you with the vast universal consciousness where we all became one. At 12, you had read books about saints aching inside for strength to be as good as them and capable of devoting yourself in faith to faith. In Joe, who you were with at the time, you sensed that same devotion. And if I didn't agree with him, then I must be at fault. I really, I love being transported back into this mindset. And I wondered if now you believe or has your philosophy evolved that it's necessary for spiritual enlightenment to disavow the material world? Um, I, I don't think that's true. Um, but you certainly, it, it, it can't rule your life. Um, if you, you know, if, if uh, you know, material wealth becomes the most important thing to you, it's going to be difficult for you to focus on, on things beyond that. Um, and I think, um, you know, you see that around us a lot today. And I notice it um, when I travel uh, significantly where I, I go to other countries, um, even a country that people think is very much similar to the U.S. You take a country like France. I was in southern France um, a few years ago. And... Uh, staying in this village there, in a small village. And there were no stores nearby. There was like one small department store in town, and then there was a market that came through once a week. And you really had to drive away to get to any significant stores. And it's hard for me to imagine any place in the United States where you don't have just, you know, stores and stores and stores and, and in certain places you know, like, you know, Florida and, and, you know, Southern California and, you know, almost anywhere you go to areas where there's just miles and miles of strip malls and, you know, on television and everywhere, there's always this culture of buy, 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 buy in the American economy. You know, that's, we need to do that to keep the American economy going and being strong. Um, but in other places, that whole buy mentality doesn't necessarily uh, exist. Mm -hmm. And 
I think that um, because of that, we have a little bit of a distorted view of life um, in in the U.S. because it it's con- we're constantly barraged with that um, with that expectation of accumulating wealth and then taking that money and spending it uh, because you know our economy depends on that. Uh, and it does, and, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, I'm I'm not against, um, I'm not mm-hmm. against uh, having a strong economy or people working or any of that. I mean, I'm fine with all of that, and I think that's a great thing. But at the same time, uh, it almost seems like it's maybe a bit overdone, right. um, more it's than skewed. it needs to be. Right, it's out of balance, yeah. and it leads directly back into climate change because obviously with this rampant consumerism, we have to deforest parts of the world in order to meet our needs for new furniture, new things, and it's all of a piece. Um, I think that you know the discrepancies that we experience in, in terms of wealth and our caring about one another are also um, pollutants that emerge from this kind of individual desire to consume. Um, and I, I, I think that when you were, so it's the balance is what you're saying in terms of spirituality right. and the connection to the consumer world. And I, I get that. Um, you did you did reach a point when you know all of this oneness that you were experiencing both in nature, which I can appreciate, and through uh, artificial substances um, like acid and and pot and other drugs. But you know everything was oneness um, in the hippie culture you experienced, including being with one another. So in one passage, you're talking about where um, Joe insisted we sleep on the floor in the living room right outside of where Nancy slept with her daughter in a double bed behind a curtain. Rob slept on the other end of the living room couch. No one asked what I thought. And I felt unworthy of offering an opinion. I was extremely uncomfortable and barely spoke throughout our stay. I wished I could disappear. I mean, here I get the antecedents of your depression, um, a kind of a bottoming out, a shriving, if you will, of kind of emerging from this identity um, that you'd taken on and, um, you know, coming into a sense that you, your own presence wasn't really mattering. You were despondent um, from a lack of rootedness and a kind of homelessness even, that kind of disenfranchisement and a lack of, again, ability to define a future. It's ironic because you escaped just that very um, dysphoria. Um, you know, but now you're on the alternative end of it. So at one point, you thought of ending your life. You actually contemplated suicide. You thought about jumping into traffic, but then you didn't want to make someone else's life miserable who hit you. You thought about jumping from the youth hostel roof. Um, but what if you decided otherwise in midair? I mean, to me, this is all just great stuff that you're so human and candid. Um, And you didn't act on this impulse, but you did come to a point where you um, changed, right? You'd had enough of life on the road. And how did that feel for you to start to shed that skin? Uh, Well, what happened first, um, you know, right around that same time, 
um, I guess I came to the realization that um, I wasn't afraid anymore. I wasn't afraid to die. Um, uh, you know, it, first I was looking at death as something that um, was going to save me from more pain and more, um, you know, more trouble and more confusion and, and all that kind of thing. Um, because I, I felt as though I had experienced everything that life had to offer at 16. Um, and, and I think that's probably a common way that young people feel at times. Um, but then what I came to realize is that um, I wasn't afraid to die. And in fact, because I wasn't afraid to die, what what was there to be afraid of? Because, you know, Fear and death is really the ultimate um, fear that humans experience um, for the most part. I mean, I'm sure there's things worse than death. Uh, but that, but by having that experience, um, it kind of freed me to consider other things that I could do. Um, and one of those things was to go home and mm-hmm. not feel controlled anymore because... Um, because I didn't have to buy into all of that fear and anxiety and all the rest of it. You could actually be viable as a person and stand up for yourself, um, even in that environment. And so you did go back to school. Um, It's kind of a miraculous arc, this whole journey that takes place in a container of a very short period of time, relatively speaking, in this book. Uh, no Rules, a memoir that's so worthwhile. Um, I wanted to just refer here to a poet, um, David White, who many of you know, because um, this passage where you go home reminds me of this poem that he has, The Old Interior Angel. And he says, one day the hero sits down, afraid to take another step, and the old interior angel limps slowly in with her no-nonsense compassion and her old secret and goes ahead. Namaste, she says, and you follow. And it's just really interesting to me where now you're going to go back home, you're built up more as yourself, you're consolidated more as a person who has survived, and you have less fear um, to me, this is just um, a beautiful thing that you evolved into this. Um, and you have now developed a certain inner power um, that you didn't have before. Um, and I really, I think that this inner journey is part, very much part of this book. Um, you also were saved in a certain way by a book. You were still carrying around with you in your knapsack Um, the book that Ed had given you in Venice, California, from his collection of hippie culture, it was Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. And you write that you dove into its passages, immersing yourself in the magic of the story. Um, My depression waned as I daydreamed that some kind of utopia was out there, that someone might have created a loving spiritual community, and that perhaps if you could find it, there was something new for you to consider. And maybe you hadn't exhausted all of the world's possibilities. So 
as the, you know, as the all-knowing 16, 17-year-old, you realized maybe you didn't know about everything. And as you started this conversation <laughs> with us, you know, you learned what you didn't know. And that, that was amazing um, commentary as well. Do you think that reading and being more or less saved by a book was a driver to becoming an author? When, you, when did you start wanting to write this story? Um, well, I started to write, I, I had already um, been writing, um, particularly poetry, when I was younger. Um, and I, I was interested in writing for years. In fact, my sixth grade teacher asked us what our goal was, and mine was to write a book. So it took me a while to, to accomplish that. Yes, <laughs> but, but um, you did it. You did it. And I'm, yeah. I'm, going, to, I'm going to rudely interrupt you um, first by thanking you so much. Our conversation has come to an end, but there's such an appreciation here of nature, of Native cultures. We are going to have to get back to the garden. This beautiful book, uh, No Rules, a memoir by Sharon Duquette. You can find her on www.sharonduquette.com. She has Facebook, Sharon Duquette author, and she's on Instagram, Sharon Duquette, Twitter as well, Travels, Travels ED. Take care, everyone, and thank you, Sharon Duquette, for being with us. It's been a joy. Till next week, everyone stay safe, and thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then. 